So back at the turn of the 20th century, early days of American football, we see a story of squaring off of two colleges, the College of Chicago, University of Chicago, and the University of Illinois. And the coach of the University of Chicago at the time was a Hall of Famer, one of the famous coaches of the early days, Amos Alonzo Stagg. Amos Alonzo Stagg was known as a man of integrity, so much so that during this game that the referee was injured. You know, just one of those things that happens. The ref gets knocked over. It's the early days of football. They didn't have a plethora of referees around and didn't have, you know, however many they have, seven to ten that they have these days. And so what did they do? They didn't know what to do after they halted the game, but to call upon one of the coaches to come and referee the game. And what did they do? They called on Alonzo, Amos Stagg, to referee the game. Now, could you imagine something like that happening in our day and age? Where they ask one of the coaches and ask you to just referee based upon your integrity and ref it as fair as you can. Amazing. It's an amazing story of the reputation that this man had and a reputation of integrity. And that's what we're going to see today as we're continuing our leadership series. We look at the integrity of Daniel leading through integrity. As we've done with several of these biblical characters, we're going to do a survey of his life in chapters 1, 2, and then skipping over to chapter 6 and do a survey of his life and see how woven throughout of all of his life, we're going to see this thread of Daniel was one who led through integrity. Now, as we do, we're going to see some little leadership asides in the midst of these different narratives that we see of his life, some interesting little things that we see that are great lessons of leadership, but the great leadership left lesson that is sort of overarching in all of this is the fact that he led through his integrity. And folks, listen to this. As you lead for God, because remember, you're a spiritual leader, even in your place of work, even in your school, even in your neighborhood, as you lead for God, your leadership will demand diligence in personal integrity. And some of you right now are probably thinking of, yeah, I know there's been a time and I can give you time and date of when it was a real test of integrity or when I saw failure of integrity around me. And let me tell you, that is going to be a major part and will continue to always be a major part as we're all called to be leaders of our leadership is our integrity and leading with personal and diligence in integrity. And so the very first thing that we're going to see in chapter 1 of the book of Daniel as we look at the life of Daniel is this. Integrity requires resolve. Integrity requires resolve. So the background of this chapter, you see that King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, has conquered Israel as they had done. They were the great nation of the time. They had gone through and conquered a bunch of other nations. And what their practice was was to take some of the best and the brightest of the nation that they would captured, oftentimes of the royal family, and train them in the ways of the Babylonians. So they'd take the best and the brightest, they would train them in their ways, they would feed them with their food so that they could make them super healthy, make them strong, and make them great leaders in their ways. There's only a problem with this. There was a significant problem that we see here, is that they were called to take on the customs, especially the dietary practices of the Babylonians. And this ran afoul of the convictions of Daniel and, and, and his, uh, his friends that were in this court with him. It ran afoul of that. And so what we see here in the very beginning of this chapter before we read any verses specifically is the fact that we see it echoed again, that there are going to be times in your life, and it's the world in which we live in which the world is going to try to push you into its mold. 
What does that sound sound like? Does that sound familiar to us? Yeah, it does. Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word for conform there means to push into a mold. So the world in which we live, the brokenness of sin in which we live, and there's good things about our world, but we definitely know the world is not as God designed it. It's fallen into sin and it's broken. And so we see there is a, a, a nature of our world that tries to push us into its mold. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers and as spiritual leaders, we have to resist and we have to be, not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And as we do that, we're going to be making decisions of integrity daily. But we have to trust. And do we believe, do you believe that God will sustain you in the midst of that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will sustain you and protect you and bless you even when you don't take the shortcut at work that other people are taking, when the boss is not looking? And you know you can take a shortcut and you can do it not the way that uh, that boss has asked you to do it. Or you can figure out how to kind of cut corners. Are you going to do with integrity? What about the boss? It's, you feel like you're on a road trip and you got to go out and party with the boss because everybody else is partying with the boss. You feel like you got to get in good with them so you might kind of get a fast track on that promotion but it goes against your convictions, it goes against anything you feel comfortable with doing, are you going to trust that the Lord will sustain you in the midst of it? What about, you know, our high school or college students? You feel like you got a party to be part of the popular crowd or the in crowd? You feel like God will sustain you and make you happy, help you to be fulfilled even in the midst of that, kind of swimming against the stream of what the world says will make you happy? Are we going to trust the Lord to sustain us? But we see here that Daniel resolved verse 8 it says this but daniel resolved in his mind he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank this was ceremonially unclean to them therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow them not to defile themselves and god gave daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs the one who was in charge of grooming these conquered these men from these conquered realms And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should I see that? Why should he see that you are worse in the condition than the use of your own age? He says, I'm afraid I'm in charge of you. And if if I don't present you at the end of this time of grooming, just as healthy and just as well prepared as the other people, then I'm going to be in trouble. It's on me. Why would I do that so that you would endanger my head with the king? Why would I do that? So they refused out of conviction, and it said that Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved to do it. Now, here's the thing. When we think about our integrity, when we think about integrity requires resolve, leading through God-given integrity, it will require that great resolve. Leading through integrity requires God-given resolve. Now, I put God-given in there specifically because, again, we don't find the root of this resolve within ourselves. And as we get a little further into the life and the narrative of Daniel, we're going to see what that resolve was based upon, but it was rooted in God himself. So we don't find this sort of resolve just within this sort of internal well. Yes, we need to find it uh, within ourselves, but in the sense that it is based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we find it. That's where we find it. Now, one of the other things that we see that's really interesting about this narrative, too, is that Daniel took a risk. Not only did he have resolve to lead with integrity, but he took a tremendous risk. But it was a tremendous risk that was based upon a calling of God and a calling of resolve of integrity. But a tremendous risk. 
And a little aside here, again, integrity is what is woven throughout the life of Daniel. But this aside is that he was also one that took risk. And you as a leader, it is going to take, and there's going to be times in your life where risk is required. Now, once again, we've talked about every single message in this sermon series that you may not think like you have a great scope or a great breadth of leadership, but every single one of us, whether you think you have a large breadth of leadership or relatively small, we are all leaders and we are all called at times to lead. And so there's also going to be times where just like Daniel, leadership requires risk. Now here I'm going to give you my second, second, so we got a limit today, second illustration about football. That's probably it, right? That's it. We got a two football illustration limit and guess what it's not about the cowboys most of you know i'm a cowboys fan thank you it's actually about the chiefs so it's going to be about the chiefs and it's a good one and it's about risk right so many of you probably don't know but andy reed last week as he won the super bowl and the chiefs won the super bowl he became only the second coach now it's a little hard to follow but it's an important stat he became only the second coach to win his first championship after being in his current position more than five years. That sounds a little convoluted, but basically what it means is that coaches don't win championships. Coaches don't win championships if they've been in a place too long. They don't because the message wears thin, right? So he is the only, the second coach, Bill Cowher is the other one. He's only the second coach to win a championship across all the four major sports in the United States for the last 30 to 40 years after he's been at that place more than five years more than five years. So again, the point is, you don't win a championship if you've been there too long. Your message gets old. They stop listening to you. So what was the difference? What was the difference? I think, in my opinion, he took a major risk. He took a major risk. And if you know anything about the Chiefs, you know what the major risk was. He drafted Pat Mahomes. If you remember that, it doesn't seem like a risk now, but if you remember that draft from a few years ago, he was projected as a late first round, early second round pick, with a lot of upside, but a tremendous amount of risk. They thought, okay, he's got a lot of arm talent, but he could really flame out. But what did they do? They took him as the number 10 pick, much higher than he was projected, and that's what changed the narrative. He very well could have been just like any of the other coaches that have been there and worn out their welcome too long, but he said, I got I to take a major risk. It's a great leadership lesson for us as well. As leaders, we are going to be required to take a risk. We're going to be required to take a risk. Now, here's the great thing about being a spiritual leader. It's not a risk that we just kind of got to find the risk on our own and we're just sort of flying out into nowhere. No, it is a risk based upon what God has called us to do. So it's a risk on the surface, but it is one that's not risky in the end because God has called us to do whatever God has called you to do. But we got to lead with integrity and we have to take and be willing to take risks. And one of the greatest risks that we will take as leaders is risking something that might cost us standing for our integrity, even though it might cost us something in whatever place we're leading. Just like Daniel, we have to take risk, and integrity requires resolve. Now, the next thing we see is the sort of next chapter we see in the life of Daniel, and is the next chapter in the book of Daniel as well. We see chapter number 2. Chapter number 2 opens with Nebuchadnezzar who is greatly troubled by a dream. He's greatly troubled by a dream. And Daniel has a chance to really step into his life, and God opens a tremendous door. And that's the next thing that we're going to see. When we live with integrity, 
God opens doors. Integrity opens doors in our lives. So King Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 2, opens where he is greatly troubled by a dream. I mean, he's having night sweats the whole nine yards. He is troubled by this dream. And he goes to all of his wise men and his astrologers and his magicians, all these that are supposed to know exactly what it is. And he says, I want you to come and interpret my dream. And of course, as these magicians and astrologers, as they had no real powers, they were just crafty in the ways of deceptions. They said, well, tell us the dream. Tell us what it was, and then we'll tell you the interpretation. We'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar was at least wise enough to say, ah, I'm not going to fall for that because I know you're going to kind of craft some story out of it just to buy your time. He's like, you know what I want you to do? Not only do I want you to interpret the dream, but I want you to tell me what the dream was. Uh-oh. And he's like, and by the way, if you can't tell me what the dream was and you can't interpret it, then it's going to be your head. I'm going to put you to death. Big stakes, right? So they are, as you can imagine, freaking out at this time. They don't know what they're going to do, but of course, Daniel, who is a man of God, led by the Lord, is part of this court. He's part of this court, although obviously he's not one with false power because of these magicians, but he's sort of loosely connected to this court, and he hears what's happening. And he goes to one of the chief Uh, chief astrologers and he says let me go and speak to the king let me go and speak to the king because he knows he goes in the name of the lord and so we pick it up here in verse 17 then daniel went to his house and made the manner known to hananiah mishael and azariah his companions uh, his jewish companions and that told them to seek mercy from the god of heaven concerning this mystery so that daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of babylon so what did they do? Did they sort of did they freak out with the rest of these Babylonian leaders and these these astrologers and these wise men? No. What did they do? They went to the Lord in prayer. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision that night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And what did he do? Not only did he pray, but he gave glory unto God. And through that, God opened a door. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of, the God, the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He knew it wasn't about him and his wisdom. It wasn't about his craftiness, but it was about God in whose name he lived. He reveals, he, God reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and in the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and then now made known to me what we ask of you. For you, for you have made known what is the king's matter. He gave praise unto God. And so that Daniel, with the confidence of prayer, knowing that he went in the Lord, it says in verse 24, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, who is the one who is the leader of these wise men, went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus to them, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon, for bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. He went in confidence because he went in prayer. He went in confidence because he went in prayer. And you say, well, you know, pastor, that sounds great in sort of the spiritual world. We've been talking about this throughout the the thread of this whole sermon series, right? How we make a false dichotomy sometimes between the spiritual world and the secular world. And yes, we know there's a spiritual world in the sense that uh, of angels and demons and things like that, but in the sense that, oh, we have the spiritual world of things that matter about the church, right? Or religion or Christianity, but then I have my secular world over here. That's not how God sees it. 
God sees that secular world as a place of mission for you. And so, yes, that area of your life is just as important as what you might call the spiritual area of your life. You might say, Pastor, I understand that prayer works in the spiritual world when we're praying about things, you know, at the church and stuff like that. But I need concrete answers, right? I need concrete leadership answers. Folks, do you think that God doesn't care about whatever you might consider the real world? You think God doesn't care about what you might consider that real part of your life or your day-to-day part of your life or the secular part of your life? Absolutely he does. What does he tell us, in fact? He tells us that if we store up treasure in heaven, if we do things our, his way, if we do things way in that we're storing up treasure in earth for eternity, guess what he's doing? He is taking care of that secular world, as you might call it, or that real world, as you might call it. He is taking care of things on earth. He's taking care of that. It matters. It matters. And guess what? You are being led of the Lord. He doesn't just answer prayer that relate to Metropolitan Baptist Church. He answers prayers. He gives answers that relate to every scope and aspect of the life of the believer who is following him. He cares. He cares about those things. And so, again, we see that Daniel comes in in the midst of the king. It's set up. He comes and prepares, and he has those praying for him. And he comes and he stands before the king. And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, verse 27, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But what does he do? He says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these, are these. He gives glory unto God. He says, there is a God in heaven. He does not take credit for what he is about to do, for the power that he's about to go in. Great leaders, another little aside here, is that great leaders don't take credit for their success. They give credit to others. And in this case, giving credit to the one who matters most. Giving credit unto God. Giving credit unto God. He says, this God comes and he gives me the power to do this, that that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That you may know the thoughts of your mind. He's saying that you might be set at ease, king. That you might not be troubled. Folks, the spiritual leader looks for the good, prays for the good, and does good for those around them, even those that might be considered by others to be enemies. Because that is the way that we live in Christ-likeness. You know what? Every opportunity that you have, every opportunity that you have where a coworker might wrong you, let's just take that as an example. You might have a coworker that wrongs you, and every opportunity where, that, where, where you do that is an opportunity to e- either retaliate like those of the world might, or you have an opportunity to respond with grace just as Christ Jesus would. Each one of those is an opportunity to see mission in the midst of those. So he, not only does he say, I go in the name of God, but I go in the name of God that your mind might be put at ease, that you might know the thoughts of your mind. Even those that would be considered enemies of the Hebrew people, Daniel goes and he prays and does good for the king. And so what is the dream? It says this in verse 31, you saw, O king, here's what you saw. Here's what you saw with all of the, the, with all of the consequences laid out at Daniel's feet. If he gets it wrong, off with his head. All of the, 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 all of the consequences are laid out there before him. And Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, you beheld a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its middle and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold all came together and were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And he continues on and he gives them the interpretation of this dream and he basically lays out for him and predicts the great nations of the world that would be coming after Babylon. He'd be exceeded by Persia and by Greece and by Rome. And then ultimately, it's, a, it's another projection as well, another a focal point of prophecy that he projects the coming of Jesus Christ, that stone that was cut out by no human hands that would come in great glory again. And all the great nations of the world would be laid in rubble and he would have Jesus Christ who would reign for eternity. He interpreted This dream, under the power of God, he interpreted this dream. Now, here's the great thing we understand, or here's the really important thing that we have to understand about that as well. This wasn't good news to the king. This wasn't news where Daniel delivers and says, man, isn't that awesome news? Isn't that great? That he says, no, your kingdom won't live forever. You're going to be the next one that's going to be destroyed, and you'll be succeeded by another great world power. But he had integrity. He had integrity even to deliver bad news. Integrity to even deliver bad news, not knowing what the king would do. Not knowing what the king might do. But here's the thing. When we lead with integrity, God opens a door of opportunity. When we lead with integrity, God will open a door of opportunity. So we see he interprets this dream. He gives them the bad news, but lays his mind at ease in the sense that he at least knows what it is. And what is the opportunity? What is the door of opportunity that God opens to him? Verse 46, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Do you understand the gravity of this? So this is King Nebuchadnezzar. The most powerful man in the world at this time, he has conquered nation after nation after nation. And they have their own gods of their, false gods of their nation. And of course, that's what all of the astrologers and the wise men, that's part of what they're doing is conjuring up these false gods. And he knows there's nothing to it. And that's why he tests them. And he ultimately gives glory unto the true God, the God of heaven, because of the witness and the power of God through Daniel. And the king gave Daniel, verse 48, high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made requests of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. What a great opportunity. When he led with integrity, God opened a door. God opened a door. Of opportunity. You see, when we lead with integrity in the place wherever God has called us, we have more at stake than just a raise or just a promotion. Those things are extremely important. Don't let me downgrade those whatsoever. But we have more at stake than even those things. We have the manifest gospel at stake in your place of work, your place of business, your place of school, your neighborhood. 
you know, think about how it would revolutionize. Maybe you feel like you're stuck in a dead-end job. Maybe you kind of feel like you're just, you don't know what you're doing. Maybe you've got to whatever stage of your life you're in and you just don't feel like you've progressed in life the way you thought you might have. Maybe you have broken dreams or whatever it might be. Can you extrapolate that out over the experiences of your life? Think about how it would revolutionize your life, your job, your neighborhood, your clubs and and groups that you're involved in, that job, whatever it might be, how that would revolutionize that. If you see that, as your mission field. You see that truly as the place where God has called you. God has called you to be on mission for him. God has called you to make a difference. How that would revolutionize that. And what if you do make a decision of integrity? I don't think this is a dichotomy that we're faced with that often, but let's say we are faced with a decision that you stand up for integrity. You make a decision of integrity that might cause you, might prevent you from climbing up one more rung on that ladder. But what if it means that one more person has come to faith in Christ at your place of work? Is that worth it? Is that worth it? I think it is. You see, in the decisions, the the dilemmas may not be exactly in that order, that way. That might not be exactly how it's presented to you. But when we live with integrity, when we make decisions of integrity, God opens tremendous doors for you and, most importantly, for the gospel. So not only do we see integrity requires resolve, and in chapter 2 that integrity opens doors, but integrity demands a stand. Integrity demands a stand. There's going to be a time, and we've sort of touched on that throughout the life of Daniel so far, but there's going to be a time where there is a stand that is required for integrity. Flip with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is older in life, and now he is on to another king in his life. His faithfulness has allowed him to serve in the, the court of the, next, of the king of the next great empire. So it has come to pass, just as the dream predicted in the next great empire, the Medes and the Persians are on the scene, and he now has the opportunity to serve in this court because of his integrity. And it said in verse 1 through 5, it pleased Darius, the king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps throughout the whole kingdom, those that were governors and rulers throughout the great breadth of his kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So again, he has lived a life of integrity and great leadership, and he continues to have a great place of opportunity. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because of his excellent spirit that was within him. And the king planned to set the whole kingdom, set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials, the satraps, sought to find ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found within him. He lived with such integrity that they were trying to undercut him. They were trying to get him. They were trying to get him out of there so they could advance their own plans and their own selfish issues. But they couldn't. He lived with such integrity. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They knew. They knew they could get him based upon if they put him in a dilemma where he would have to deny his God and he would have to compromise his spiritual integrity. They knew his integrity was so high that he wouldn't do it. He would take a stand. They knew him by his spirit of reputation. And an excellent spirit was in him. 
Folks, you understand, with even the secular world takes notice when we live by biblical principles. They might not understand why. They might not be to the point yet where they have understood the, the good news of the gospel, but it gives you opportunity. They might, at times, I don't understand why in the world you take such a stand on something. Just cut the corner. It's okay. They might not understand why you do it. They might at times resent you for the fact that you do it, but the secular world will take notice. The lost world will take notice, and it gives us opportunity to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It gives us that opportunity. It says, then the, high, the, the, the officials, those satraps and those other high officials of which Daniel was over all of them, they said that they were going to find ground for complaint. You know, when we faithfully follow the Lord, there will be times where we're still wronged. We might faithfully follow the Lord. God never promised that the life, the journey of the believer in Jesus Christ, the Christian, is just going to be free from potholes. There are going to be times where we live for integrity, we do things the right way, and we're still going to be wronged. But again, it is an opportunity for us. How are we going to respond? Are we going to retaliate uh, in, an, in an undue, in an unjust, in an unchristlike way? Or are we going to look for an opportunity to show grace stand with integrity and further the gospel. There will be times that we have to remember that God is still upon his throne. We also have to remember, just as it tells us in James chapter 1, that these things are trials and difficulties. As God is on his throne and sovereign, he knows these things. He knows these things are coming into your life, and he uses these as opportunities for trial to cling to him and strengthen your resolve. So what do they do? They say, we're not going to get him in any other way, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a law, and they trick the king into saying, hey, why don't you sign this law that for 30 days no one could bow down to any other uh, deity, no one could bow down to any other wise person, anything else, any other god other than you, king. You're the only one that anybody can give homage to, pay homage to in 30 days. And of course, you know, as any king would probably have, they're probably playing a little bit on his pride. And they're saying, that sounds like a great idea. Look at all the great things that you've done, king. Who wouldn't want to do this? So the king says, sure. He signs it into law. And the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be revoked. And what do they do? They've got him. They know Daniel is not going to compromise his integrity. He respects the king. He serves the king. But he is not going to bow down to him like he would bow down to God. He refuses to do it. So what does it say? What does it say that he does? Does he hide? Does he try to just sort of last out the 30 days? Does he sort of try to figure out a way to weasel his way out of it? No, look what he does in verse 10. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Some of your translations might say, as is his custom. So what did he do? He didn't do anything out extraordinary. He didn't go and just sort of thumb his, his nose at the law, but he didn't compromise and he didn't bow down to the king. He continued to do what he always did. He was in the habit of praying to his Lord. He was in the habit of, of praying and calling out to God three times a day. And what did he do? Did he cower? No. Did he go and thumb his nose at, at the king? No. He stuck with what he did. He stayed with his integrity. He didn't fret. He didn't scheme. He didn't play politics. He knelt down and he prayed. He knelt down and he prayed. Folks, a stand of integrity, a stand of integrity is built upon a life of virtue and a life of prayer. 
Folks, there will be times where you're going to have to stand for your integrity, but you know what it's built upon? It's built upon a life of making those choices of integrity. If you make little choices of integrity throughout the course of your life, integrity, 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 virtue, living with virtue, living with virtue, and small decisions here, small decisions here, guess what they do? They build up a strong foundation for when the big decision of integrity will certainly be down the, down the pike, when the certain certainly be on the horizon. Those things build up that foundation, integrity, and a life of prayer. So those big decisions, those big decisions of integrity are built on that foundation of a virtuous life and a foundation of prayer. It says it was his custom since his early days, in fact. Verse 10 in different translations, it was his custom since his early days. It was his lifelong custom. Folks, when we're thinking about a life of prayer, there's two sides to the to to the, the nature of prayer. One is a disciplined life of prayer. That's what we see here in example and on display with Daniel. He was disciplined three times. He specifically carved out time for prayer. So for you, whether it is that you carve out time of prayer, that you get up a little earlier in the morning, you get your cup of coffee, you sit down, you, you, you read your Bible, and you pray into the Lord, or maybe you take your lunch break and you go out and do some prayer walking, or maybe you do it at night, whatever it might be, carve out that time and you say this time is given to you god because if you don't carve carve it out what happens to anything that we don't schedule in our lives it doesn't get done right now think about that especially for the most important time that we could spend in our day prayer take those times carve it out say this is unquestionably god's time a disciplined life of prayer but we also need spontaneous prayer so we have a disciplined life of prayer, which is what we should set out. And guess what? That becomes the foundation for spontaneous prayer in our life. The, the 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 type of prayer, pray without ceasing. Meaning as we're just walking around, as we're going from one cubicle to the next, and we just had a real tough encounter with somebody, did we just say, God, help me in that situation to not respond, respond in sin, but help me to respond, help me not to shrink back. If, if there's something that needs to be dealt with, that I deal with it, but help me to deal with it in kindness speaking the truth in love, or maybe you're going and you say, gosh, my uh, co-worker, they have a, a kid that's really sick. Why well, don't pray for them and that you would, you would you'd bring healing in their life. Give me an opportunity to pray for them. You pray at school and you say, give me an opportunity for that kid. Help me to connect with that kid that is really tough and, 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 and having a really difficult home life. And man, people shun him and I have a heart for that kid. Those types of prayers, spontaneous prayer life is also part of our prayer life. Disciplined prayer and spontaneous prayer. Folks, just as extraordinary, challenging times of integrity are built upon a life of virtue, so extraordinary times of prayer are built upon lifetime of little prayer. Lifetimes of little prayers. Just being in the habit of praying, being in the habit of disciplined prayer, spontaneous prayer in our life. Standing for integrity will require a life of virtue and a life of prayer. And it says this in verses 25 through 27, as we begin to kind of bring this narrative to a close. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages on the earth. And what do we see again through a life of integrity lived by Daniel? All the kings, he wrote to all the peoples, the nations, and the languages that dwelt, dwelt on the earth. He says, peace be multiplied to you, and I decree in all my royal dominion that the people are to tremble before the God of Daniel. What happened? What happened to call King Darius to do this? Well, we know the penalty 
of not bowing before the king was to be thrown into the lion's den. One of the first stories we hear when we were little kids. And this was serious business. This wasn't the cute, cuddly lions that we kind of put up on the, on the walls of the, uh, of the children's ministry. These were lions. And they were going to tear them limb from limb. And King Darius, he is tremendously concerned about this because he cares for Daniel. And he knows what a good man Daniel was, but he knew Daniel would not compromise his integrity. And he knew the law couldn't be changed. And so he has to throw him in the lion's den. And he does not sleep at all that night. King Darius is so worried. He comes back the next day. And he says, Daniel is hoping beyond hope that Daniel is still alive. And Daniel cries out and he tells him that he's here. And that his God has sustained him. God's, uh, Daniel's God has sustained him and has shut the mouth of the lions. And we see through this extraordinary time of God opening this door through his integrity, we see again another king, another world leader give glory unto God. And he says in verse 26 again, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Listen, this is a secular king. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be, uh, have no end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And I love MacArthur says this as he sort of wraps up this narrative of Daniel. He says, Daniel illustrates the evangelistic potency of a godly, uncompromising life. Daniel illustrates the evangelistic potency of a godly, uncompromising life. Folks, have greater vision. Have greater vision in that place in which you work where you just don't know if you're going to advance. You just don't know if, if that's the right place. Maybe you just don't feel like you're in the life that you wished you were living. Have a greater vision than just yourself. You are on mission for the Lord. As you lead for the Lord, as you lead for the Lord, your leadership will demand diligence and personal integrity. Let's pray. Lord God. As we come and we pray unto you, I pray that you would give all of us, whatever the opportunity of leadership and mission might be, that you would give us the greater vision than just beyond ourselves and climbing ladders and, and, and expanding influence, but we would expand our influence for you and for your gospel and for your glory. God, I pray that as, and as we go from this place today and as tomorrow we go uh, back into our places of influence like work and school or neighborhoods and groups that we're involved in, that again, we would have diligence to live with the integrity that we see displayed in Daniel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We come down to this time.